0: In episodes one and two, we discussed how the characters in Julius Caesar use certain linguistic techniques to build up a public image of themselves and to convince others to adopt their point of view. This is the art of rhetoric, and it plays a central role in Shakespeare's depiction of Rome. In this episode, we'll analyse key speeches from the play to uncover how that rhetoric works and to show how language can be such a persuasive political tool. Professor Michael Dobson, director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford, guides our discussion. Our first speech comes from Act Two, when a troubled, sleepless Brutus is pondering what Cassius has said to him about Caesar's ambition and deliberating over how he could be stopped.
1: It must be by his death. And for my part, I know no personal cause to spurn at him but for the general, he would be crowned. How that might change his nature, there's the question. It is the bright day that brings forth the adder and that craves weary walking. Crown him that and then I grant we put a sting in him that at his will he may do danger with. The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power, and to speak truth of Caesar I have not known when his affection swayed more than his reason, but is a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face, but when he once attains the utmost round, He then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend, so Caesar may. Then, lest he may prevent. And since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that what he is augmented, would run to these and these extremities and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched would, as his kind, grow mischievous and kill him in the shell.
2: But well, here's a remarkable moment and one of the moments we see into Brutus's mind in the first half of the play. So far, we've seen him being worked on by Cassius Cassius has said to him as explicitly as he dares, we ought to kill Caesar because Caesar wants to make himself permanent ruler of Rome. And what we would expect to hear when Brutus is thinking aloud at night in his orchard is Brutus going through the reasons for and against, well, should I kill Caesar? Shouldn't I kill Caesar? And reaching a decision. Um, But this speech works very surprisingly completely the other way round. The first thing it gives us is the conclusion. Brutus says it must be by his death. Not it should be, it must. It's given the force of something that is a sort of given. Um, The triggers have already been pulled, the stimuli have already made the decision for Brutus. Um, And then he goes through all the reasons why he shouldn't kill Caesar and tries to come up with a reason to do so, regardless. you know it must be by his death. but I know no personal cause to spurn at him. You know he's always been terribly nice to me. It's, I mean this goes against my personal feelings, but for the general, you know uh, this is purely a political matter. Um, he would be crowned, you know this you know the fact of Caesar apparently wanting to become king, wanting to wear a crown on his head. That is the key signifier for Brutus. Um, And it's all hypotheses, the rest of the speech. Because Caesar might do this, it's better if I kill him now uh, so that he won't have the opportunity. You know, this is very morally dubious reasoning. Anybody might do something awful and you could definitely prevent them from doing so by killing them. Um, But here is Brutus Appealing to a range of proverbs and casting Caesar in different roles, one of which is as a snake. There's no—he is a predatory animal. At the moment, he's only a baby adder. Um, In fact, he winds up coming back to this image and saying, "You know, he's—he's just an adder's egg. The thing to do with an adder's egg is stamp on it. You know, we've got to kill him as a potential king before." Uh, he becomes invulnerable by having too much power. Um, and uh, But everything he says about his own experience of Caesar is positive. You know, he, he is himself a perfect stoical Roman. Uh, I have not known when his affection swayed more than his reason. You know, he does things based on what he thinks out. He doesn't do things to indulge his feelings. But, you know, the Brutus keeps coming up with these buts but perhaps he's just being nice to people so as to get ahead. Ah, that must be it. I will decide that that's the real fact rather than the fact I've actually experienced. So Caesar may, then lest he may prevent. You know, this is preemptive tyrannicide. It's, I've, you know, we've got to kill him because of things he might do rather than uh, things he has done. The quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is you know, trying to prove he deserves to be killed just based on things he's actually done. Yeah, it's hopeless. You know, no, can't possibly do that. The only way I can persuade myself this is the right thing to do, which is what I've already decided, is by saying um, he's a serpent's egg. It's obvious, really. Um, he's not my old friend and political colleague. He is an unhatched, venomous serpent. And therefore, the right thing to do is kill him. Uh, it's, you know, quite we've shown this mind talking itself into something it's already decided to do and clearly not sounding entirely comfortable with it, but he's going to go ahead with it anyway, and we're going to watch the consequences.
0: Our next speech comes from the pivotal scene of the play in Act 3, just before the conspirators stab Caesar. The conspirators have just asked him to pardon a political offender, Caesar refuses, in language that shows just how much he believes in his own greatness.
3: I could well be moved if I were to. If I could pray to move, prayers would move me. But I am constant as the northern star. Of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament. The skies are painted with unnumbered sparks. They are all fire, and every one doth shine. But there's but one in all doth hold his place. So in the world, tis furnished well with men, And men are flesh and blood and apprehensive. Yet in the number I do know but one that unassailable holds on his rank, unshaked of motion, and that I am he, let me a little show it, even in this, that I was constant, Simba should be banished, and constant do remain to
2: keep him so. When the conspirators have managed to persuade Caesar to come to the Senate House, where he'll be vulnerable, Um, something Caesar didn't want to do, but they flattered him into it, he finally provides them with the perfect provocation for getting on with stabbing him. This is textbook hubris, uh, a display of excessive pride, a display of somebody who's got completely above themselves and doesn't really think of themselves as a human being anymore. Um, And you wonder whether Caesar is slightly camping this up, whether he's enjoying being bombastic, enjoying describing himself as... Um, A star, Um, and if other people are stars, they're just sparks uh, compared to him. Um, If I were as you, you know, Caesar distinguishes himself. It's one of the times when he speaks in the first person instead of referring to himself as Caesar. But um, it's always to put down the people around him. I could well be moved if I were as you. He repeats that phrase but I am constant as the northern star. You know, it's it's absolutely, I am an inhuman force. Uh, I am above and I stay in the same position, unlike the unnumbered sparks that orbit around me. Uh, he's asking to be taken down a peg. Um, I do know but one that unassailable holds on his rank, unshaked emotion, and that I am he. Let me a little show it. So The mere fact that he's being obstinate and not repealing somebody's sentence, he makes into a demonstration. Uh, His status is at stake. This is going to prove that he is more godlike than the other men around him, because he's not going to change his mind. It's not that he's just a stubborn man. It's that he's godlike. He is resolved. He is constant. You know, other people have to make compromises. He doesn't. He was constant. Simba should be banished. And constant do remain to keep him so. And that's really the last red rag to the bulls of the conspirators. that you know, if they'd needed a cue, they don't need it anymore. Uh, they're going to kill him. In a play that's full of Romans persuading each other to do things, Caesar sets him up a special by saying he can't be talked into anything. We've actually just seen him being flattered into coming to the Senate at all, which makes him vulnerable, which we know is going to result in him being assassinated. But his claim is, I cannot be moved. I could be well moved if I were as you. It's other people who can be won over through persuasion, through appeal, through their feelings. If I could pray to move, prayers would move me. You know, I don't ask other people for favours. I don't need to. I am just constant. I just do what's right. I just do what Caesar should. Uh, and that's why I am star-like. I am this inhuman, fixed force. That's what makes me leader. That's what makes me Caesar. That's what makes me special. And that, of course, is what makes him intolerable to the conspirators. It's what's finally going to provoke them into getting their daggers out.
0: The next speech comes from Act Three, from the scene of Caesar's funeral. This scene was described in Shakespeare's source material from the Roman writer Plutarch, but Shakespeare created the speeches. Here, Brutus stands before the crowd to explain why he led the assassination in language that is deliberately rational and calm, perhaps even too calm.
4: Romans, countrymen and lovers, hear me for my cause. And be silent, that you may hear. Believe me for mine honor, and have respect to mine honor, that you may believe. Censure me in your wisdom, and awake your senses, that you may the better judge. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say, that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die, all slaves, than that Caesar were dead? To live all free men? As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him but as he was ambitious, I slew him. There is tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that would be a bondman? If any, speak. For him have I offended. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any, speak. For him have I offended. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? if any, speak. For him have I offended. I pause for a reply. Then none have I offended. I have done no more to Caesar than you shall do to Brutus. The question of his death is enrolled in the Capitol. his glory not extenuated wherein he was worthy, nor his offenses enforced for which he suffered death.
1: Here comes his body, mourned by Mark Antony.
4: Who, though he had no hand in his death, shall receive the benefit of his dying, a place in the Commonwealth, as which of you shall not? With this I depart. That, as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself, when it shall please my country to need my death.
2: These are the two speeches which Shakespeare adds to Plutarch. There's, I mean, sometimes when Shakespeare's dramatizing material from Plutarch, he just puts it into verse, barely changes a thing. Plutarch tells us the effect that these speeches had, but he gives Shakespeare no verbal cues at all. This is all uh, how Shakespeare wanted his version of Brutus and his version of Antony to sound and to work. And Brutus has a wonderfully pre-prepared sounding speech. It's a schoolbook exercise. It's full of repetitions and plays on words. I remember when my friend Sam West played Brutus, he had little cards that he was moving through because this was so obviously a prepared statement that he wasn't actually that good at delivering. It's in prose, um, which tells you a lot. Um, It's in very patterned prose, but nonetheless, he is not given all the effects that you can achieve through verse. Uh, this sounds different to the way Brutus speaks in many other scenes, which which are predominantly in verse. Um, and it's formal, it's pre-prepared, and it's repetitive. And it just keeps twisting words around. You know, If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus love to Caesar was no less than his, If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer, not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. It almost sounds like a Latin textbook. You know, the the words are used very deliberately and they purely appeal to reason. Not that I loved Caesar less, but I loved Rome more. Um, Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men. this is all antitheses. This is bad, this is obviously better. This would have been wrong, letting Caesar live. So this is right, making Caesar die. It's, it's very mannered while at the same time being in a rather low key. Um, it does not reach out to its hearers at all, except into make, to making these rhetorical challenges that clearly invite silence. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? You know, can you imagine anybody shouting out, "I don't want to be a Roman"? You know, I'm very rude. You know, th- this clearly is not going to happen. Uh, who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any speak for him, have I offended? I pause for a reply. You know, this is so staged; it's so um, preconceived. Um, and his final promise is, "Well, if you think this is wrong." Uh, I'm of course willing to kill myself because I'm Roman, uh, and of course we're going to watch the play play out in such a way that eventually he he winds up fulfilling this promise. Uh, but it's it's sort of um, it's sort of um, pre-rehearsed at the same time as insufficiently rehearsed. It's um, a very straightforward set of assertions that don't really do much in the way of performing performing would be beneath brutus's dignity making a really showy speech would not be the right roman stoic thing to do you just say this was the right thing to do so i have done it if it was the wrong thing i will stab myself you know and that that's supposed to be enough uh, and indeed the fact that antony then arrives to make a funeral speech lamenting over caesar is just going to prove even more that he's right, you know, and here's Caesar, you know, it's, it's, will shower of the benefit of his dying place in the Commonwealth, which of you shall not. It's very vague political promise. Well, we're all going to be, we're all going to be sorting out Rome from now on. Uh, with this, I depart, you know, this, you know, the greatest political miscalculation in classical history of, of letting Mark, Mark Antony alone with the crowd uh, as, as Brutus goes off and pretty soon finds himself having to flee the city because, Everyone in it wants to kill him. Uh, It's it's a sort of deliberately underwhelming, rather touchingly inept piece of very Roman speech-making. Being eloquent would be beneath its dignity. Uh, And uh, that sort of um, perverse vanity is what dooms uh, Brutus once Antony sets off on what is quite rightly a very, very famous speech.
0: The next speech also comes from Caesar's funeral scene in Act 3. Brutus has just delivered his defence of the assassination and now he permits Antony to stand and address the crowd. Brutus has ordered Antony not to place any blame on the conspirators and at first Antony seems to obey, but by the end of his speech his tone has radically changed.
5: Friends, Romans... Countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often terred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honourable man, so are they all, all honourable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me, but Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man, He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honourable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once, not without cause, What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar, and I must pause till it come back to me. Good friends, sweet friends, let me not stir you up to such a sudden flood of mutiny— They that have done this deed are honourable. What private griefs they have, alas, I know not that made them do it. They are wise and honourable and will no doubt with reasons answer you. I come not, friends, to steal away your hearts. I am no orator as Brutus is, but as you know me all, a plain, blunt man that love my friend, and that they know full well that gave me public leave to speak of him. For I have neither wit, nor words, nor worth, Action, nor utterance, nor the power of speech To stir men's blood, I only speak right on. I tell you that which you yourselves do know, Show you sweet Caesar's wounds, Poor, poor, dumb mouths, and bid them speak for me. But were I Brutus, and Brutus Antony, There were an Antony, would ruffle up your spirits and put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise and mutiny.
2: The opening lines are so familiar that we forget how brilliant they are, Um, how Antony deliberately allows it to look as though the crowd are dispersing that what he's saying is almost an afterthought. You know, you know friend, you know, please come back, listen to me, please listen to me, you know, as though he doesn't have confidence that he's going to be able to command their attention. Um, and of course, repeatedly, he keeps making this completely uh, ironic claim that I am no orator as Brutus is. You know, we've just seen that Brutus is no orator at all. Um, whereas Antony is extraordinarily powerful in saying how, well, I don't know how to speak powerfully, uh, it's it's um it's a marvelously hypocritical performance uh, as well as a very emotive one um, uh, and the most famous sort of textbook display of irony in the canon you know where antony continually does precisely what he officially is saying he's not doing you know i come to bury caesar not to praise him and then you know obviously he's um, I'm not here to stir you up to mutiny. Oh, don't mutiny! You know, it's 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 a way of saying, uh, actually, giving out the signals uh, that, that uh, are actually the opposite of what you claim to be saying. Um, continually and, and continually pointing the finger at Brutus. Well, Brutus says he was ambitious, you know, and Brutus is an honourable man, you know, and and and, and so on. Uh, he just gets more and more confident. And more and more outrageous. The more he sees, he's getting away with it. The more he sees that he really can work this crowd up, um, and he works them up partly by making them cry, partly by simply showing them the corpse and say, "Oh, he was my friend." You know, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to stop while I have a little cry. You know, and which is an amazingly un-Roman thing to do. It's a fairly un-Elizabethan thing to do. Men aren't supposed to cry in public. But Antony's prepared to risk that to show, you know, that he's just talking from his feelings. He is simply speaking from his heart, um, even though, of course, he is absolutely pursuing a major political design, turning the political situation, um, seizing control of the crowd as a way of bypassing the the Senate class uh, from whom the uh, conspirators are drawn. Um, what cause tells you then to mourn for him you know he he you know i you know he keeps telling the crowd what they're thinking you know i see you feel some dint of pity you know i see you're crying no that's fine i think it's right that you're crying but were i brutus you know if i were an orator like that man you've just heard speak who killed my friend Were I Brutus and Brutus Antony there, and Antony would ruffle up your spirits, put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise in mutiny. It's almost an instruction. Look, pick up a stone and mutiny. You know, uh, uh, and pretty soon they're running off to to burn down Brutus's house. Um, Yeah, it's it's a wonderful uh, scene uh, for an actor, uh, a wonderful scene for an audience. Uh, and, uh, and a scene that gives even, you know, the onstage bit parts responding to it plenty to do. You know, it's, it's uh, uh, the most, you know, the, the textbook depiction of persuasive language at work. You know, words making people do things, somebody uh, asserting their will uh, over an entire crowd of people. Uh, who are soon going to run off and, uh, and we're going to see them take it out on Sin of the Poet, poor man. One of the things Shakespeare does is he shows us the crowd and he also shows us the stimuli that are being offered to the crowd. Uh, I'm not sure that we aren't pretty much won over by Antony's speech too, or at very least we're allowed to admire it at the same time as feeling its appeal. Um, we meet plebeians at the beginning of the play who are running around Um, and putting up banners in support of Caesar. Uh, And they're rebuked by a couple of old Pompey supporters who we later hear have been taken off and executed quietly uh, on Caesar's orders. Um, There is loyalty and political feeling among this sort of disenfranchised majority in Rome. Um, But what the play is both excited and frightened of is the idea that those people who don't have a voice in the Senate might actually outnumber uh, the senators. Might actually outnumber the political class. That this is a huge potential political force that's there to be let loose, uh, and it's not obvious how it's going to be contained again once it has been let loose. Um, you know, Antony is a much, much more effective populist politician than Brutus can ever be. Brutus speaks as though he's addressing, uh, you know, an audience of of schoolteachers. Uh, whereas Antony speaks as though he's talking to just about anybody—a uh, theatre audience, a crowd—you um, know, a great number of people who have a collective mood. You, know, you don't just appeal to their individual judgment. You say, "Look, we're all Romans. This is what we should do. Uh, this is how we feel about our great leader who is now dead." Uh, it's um, it's amazingly powerful. Um, I don't agree with the view that Shakespeare expresses contempt for the disenfranchised or or contempt for the common people. You know, they're allowed very vivid voices uh, and they're allowed to be really the decisive political force in this play. Um, I don't think they look stupid for falling for Antony, even though they contradict themselves pretty quickly. You know, you hear people, people, some people are prepared to say, oh yeah, Brutus is right. And then quite soon afterwards, we hear people say, oh, yeah, Antony's right. Um, But, you know, that's genuinely how people behave when they're together, regardless
6: of what social class they belong to. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances from the following actors. Anton Lesser, for Brutus, it must be by his death. And Romans, countrymen, and lovers, hear me for my cause. Andrew Woodall, for Caesar, I could be well moved. Mark Courtley, for Mark Antony. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Kapelia Khan, Julius Caesar, A Modern Perspective. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare. And the following editions of Julius Caesar. The 1984 Oxford Shakespeare, the 1998 Arden Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to himalaya.com slash Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.